Um, well, my experience in recent years suggests there is a certain public interest in engaging with the work of academic historians. And I'm going to survey very briefly examples of my engagement with government and with the media, mainly radio and TV. I've only got time to be very brief. Um, maybe some ideas can be developed in the discussion, though, as you've heard. <clears throat> I have to leave, I'm afraid, at 10.30, so I've got to teach at 11 o'clock on the Strand campus, which isn't exactly next door. I've worked mainly on the history of social welfare in Britain <clears throat> up to the present. In recent years, mainly on the past and present of old age <clears throat> and ageing and of single motherhood, both of which are fairly important contemporary issues. As a contemporary historian, I believe strongly in linking past and present in the importance of understanding history, if you're going to understand contemporary issues. And I've spent much of my career in social science departments working between past and present. So to look, to look at examples of engagement with government I've been involved with, <coughs> Firstly, when the Equality and Human Rights Commission was being set up, in, it started in 2007, when it brought together the existing equalities bodies, those dealing with sex, with gender, with uh, race, disability, ageing and other issues. I was asked to organise a report on how the various equality issues gender, race, gay issues, disability, old age, had come into public prominence, how they became issues demanding laws against discrimination, when most of them were not seen in that way in the mid-20th century at the end of World War II. Of course, discrimination against women had been a cause of active campaigning for a long time, though not of a huge amount of action, and race discrimination also had a longer history. But age discrimination, dis disability, was simply not on anyone's radar at that time. So I gathered a, team, a, term, a team of specialists to examine each of these topics, to look at how they'd come to public notice and how anti-discrimination legislation had come into being, all at different times in the late 20th century. And we did that fairly thoroughly. The overall conclusion was that action only came about when the group concerned made a big public fuss about it, when they held demonstrations and really forced it on public notice. It was, that got easier in the later 20th century because the media were more responsive, less deferential than earlier in the century. Also, action in most things was most likely under a Labour government. Also, the European Union had been an important influence since Britain joined it in the 1970s. <clears throat> this report was submitted to the Equality and Human Rights Commission. They appeared to like it. It was published by the government and then we republished re it as a book. Whether it influenced their work in any way, I've no means of knowing, and one often doesn't. One feeds these ideas in amongst all the many, many ideas that get fed into official departments, and you may or may not get some feedback on the impact. 
The second thing I was involved with was a series of around 10 seminars for the Department for Education, the section of that department dealing with children, families, and young people. And these ran through the winter of, 19, of 2012 to 13, and then some more later in 2013. And these seminars dealt with the history of their various preoccupations, the family, childcare, support for young people. We did a couple of sessions on autism, how that had been defined and come to public notice, and it was something else we just didn't hear about a few years ago. Um, the seminars were very well attended. About 60 civil servants gave up their lunch hours to come and listen to all of these seminars, and there was a bit, they were very engaged in the discussion. They were really quite lively. Um, discussions and the feedback from the questionnaires and the informal feedback we got was very positive. This arose, these seminars arose from something I published, which was a booklet published by the British Academy on the history of the family. And it challenged the idea that until the permissive 1960s, everybody lived in long stable marriages. And then came the 60s and everyone started getting divorced and cohabiting and having sex all over the place and broken Britain was upon us. Um, I pointed out in this, among other things, that the extent of widowhood in past centuries meant that impoverished single motherhood was as much a characteristic of the 19th century and earlier centuries as impoverished single motherhood for other reasons is now. And also pointed out the extent of unmarried cohabitation, though it was secretive generally. But because of the sheer difficulty of getting a divorce, really up to the Divorce Reform Act of 1969, though we don't have numbers, signs that there was quite a lot of it going on. This publication aroused the ire of the Centre for Social Justice, the think tank established by Ian Duncan Smith, uh, before he came into government. And they published an attack on it, which was quite astoundingly full of misrepresentations and inaccuracies. But Academy sent a poor intern to analyze it, and he found 26 pages of errors. Anyway, this attack was read by civil servants in the Department for Education, and also, I've heard, in the Department for Work and Pensions. And as intelligent people, they wanted to read the thing that was being attacked. So they read me, and when they did, found me far more persuasive than the Centre for Social Justice. <laughs> and hence, as they told me, this lay behind the invitation to me on history and policy to run the seminars in the Department for Education. In fact, the head of that division on families, children, young people was trained as a historian in Cambridge, who somehow had messed a conference years ago, and continued to believe history mattered. Again, we can't judge in any precise way the effect of these seminars on policy making because so many ideas feed in. But again, we got very positive feedback. And we do know that following the seminars, that section of the Department for Education has decided to pay more attention to history when thinking about policy. And these seminars are going to be continuing um, looking at other areas of 
the interests of the Department for Education. Um, I'll talk much more briefly at examples of my engagement with the government arising from work on old age. Recently, we had a seminar at the Treasury on how numbers, the experiences, perceptions of older people have changed over time. And a parallel paper by a colleague who works on old age in Japan, which very helpfully disposed of many myths about how the Japanese families look after their, their old people so wonderfully, and we don't. And she commented on the extent of abuse of older people in Japanese families. And her general conclusion is actually we do a better job. Um, again, this was very recent. I gather there's very positive feedback, both formal and informal, from the Treasury. But what impact it has, who can tell? Last year, I gave evidence to a House of Lords Select Committee on public services for older people and was published, uh, was quoted in their published report. For example, my argument <coughs> for the need to do what Beveridge actually recommended in 1942 but wasn't done, which was to have a flexible pension and retirement age, where if people worked longer, <coughs> they got higher pensions, rather than just raising the flat rate pension retirement age which causes problems for the 20% of people who aren't fit to keep working, even to age 65. Uh, but again, you know, I, we can't judge the impact, but <clears throat> there was, as a historian, I was invited personally to give evidence and discuss with the committee and did so. Then last week, I got an invitation from the Department of Work and Pensions to give them a lunchtime lecture on our ageing society, which I'll do in April. Though I must say, I slightly hope IDS won't be there. Um, it strikes me as a bit worrying that they need a lecture on a topic that's so widely discussed and written about when they are the department responsible for important aspects of an ageing society. The debate has been going on for quite some time, uh, but we will see how it goes. I, I rather look forward to it, but this has only just happened. Uh, to look still more briefly at examples of media engagement, firstly radio in general I've found engagement with radio more satisfying than engagement with TV. Because the program makers and interviewers, whether it's Jenny Murray on Woman's Hour, Andrew Dillnott in his recent series, History in Numbers, where he interviewed me in two programs, one on aging and old age, one on women. Or the World Service was involved in some programs on comparisons of the ageing experience in different countries, and a number of others. And these experiences always felt that the people are actually interested in historical accuracy and the historical dimension to whatever the topic is at hand. Whereas TV programme makers, in my experience, can be more interested in sensational stories. And I have a feeling of the last years, increasingly so, because of competition for audiences. 
obviously there are serious historical programs and series on TV, like the ones Pam's involved in, which are actually about history. But it's when history is being used as background to some current issue that I've become a bit alarmed. The circumstances when it should be as accurate as possible. But accuracy isn't necessarily the main preoccupation of the program makers. They really want to feed into a particular line they're pushing. This particularly struck me when I was asked to be a consultant on a Channel 4 series called Benefit, Brit Benefits Britain 1949. Three programs went out last August when fortunately not too many people were around to watch it. It was presented to me as a serious attempt to reconstruct the early years of the post-war welfare state, which struck me as a good idea because there are many misconceptions about what was actually going on then. And I gave them a lot of advice on the details of how it all worked and on social conditions in the late 1940s, some of which they took note of. But when the programmes appeared, I was really shocked that in many ways, it was a precursor to the notorious Benefit Street, which I haven't been able to face watching, partly because of this experience. Also, it sounds horrible. And the same way the inhabitants of this street in Birmingham feel the programme was misrepresented to them, I felt this one was misrepresented to me. What the programmes did was to take people who are on benefits now because they were unemployed or old or disabled and then purported to show how they would have been treated in 1949. And they showed these people on benefits now all living in, they showed them in their home environments, which was incredibly comfortable. They were presented as people who really were living quite well on their benefits, which as we know, is not realistic of a very, very high proportion of people living on benefits. And then purported to show how much more severely they would have been treated in 1949, which again was not realistic because in many ways there was more sympathetic treatment, a recognition that people seriously were often too sick or disabled to work and that unemployment really did happen involuntarily. And indeed, there was much less unemployment in the late 40s than there is at the moment. So effectively, the programme was encouraging all the stereotypes of our excessively cushy welfare state of scroungers, shirkers, living the high life on benefits, which is not so. So I was pretty horrified and glad that the credits at the end of the programmes were so tiny that with luck nobody noticed I was in any way involved. But that was the most disturbing experience I've had of the way that the expertise of a historian can be abused and I'll be more cautious in future and I would caution other people to be also. And I could talk about similar sensation seeking on who do you think you are, um, who've interviewed me a few times, but I... I don't think I really have time to go into that, so I think it's best we stop and discuss, think of any questions you may have.